from KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up next on Forum this morning, President Trump responded to nationwide protests last week by urging governors to dominate protesters and saying the military could step in. New Yorker writer Masha Gessen, author of the new book Surviving Autocracy, says it's an example of Trump's use of control and power instead of political leadership. Trump ran for autocrat, and he won. Just because somebody is elected doesn't mean that that's a democratic act or that it's democratic leadership. Born in Moscow, Gessen has written extensively about Vladimir Putin and his rise to power and joins us to examine how Trump has transformed the American presidency and how he's wielding power in these times of crisis. And that's next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In their new book, Surviving Autocracy, journalist Masha Gessen suggests that President Trump was, quote, the first major party nominee who ran not for president, but for autocrat. Gessen warns that this political mindset can be lethal as Trump responds to crises like the coronavirus pandemic and protests against racism and police brutality. Born in Moscow, Masha Gessen has written extensively about Vladimir Putin and his rise to power and joins me now to examine how Trump is transforming the American presidency and how he is wielding power in these times of crisis. And welcome, Masha Gessen. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. Uh, I guess I'd like to begin by asking you to explain what you mean by he ran as an autocrat or he ran for autocrat. Many people thought he ran because uh, he wasn't going to be an autocrat or a demagogue. He was going to be a businessman who was going to lead us as business leaders would lead us. Well, um, that's another way of putting it, isn't it? Um, you know, what kind of businessman does Donald Trump conjure uh, in his presidential campaign? Which actually still continues. He continues to sort of rail against government. He continues to campaign, even while he's in office. Uh, but but you can hear him campaigning constantly against Washington and against government. So the kind of businessman that he conjured was the kind, you know, in an old-fashioned family business uh, who – makes decisions unilaterally, who has a strong chain of command, who doesn't have a lot of complexity. Part of uh, one of his boogeymen was, you know, the complexity of American government, the complexity of American politics. He kept saying, it's simpler than that. It's um, you have been lied to. You have been hoodwinked. The government that is currently uh, doesn't exist at all. And what he really meant, um, what he really meant dismantling the U.S. government, the system of regulations, the system of checks and balances, uh, the complicated system by which we decide how we live in this country. You see him as a serious threat to our democratic institutions, don't you? Major threat. Uh, I, think, I think at this point he is much more than a threat. I think at this point he has damaged our democratic institutions such as, um, in a way that may be Well, let's let's talk. Do do I have a connection here? I'm not sure I do because uh, I can I, hear you. Yes. Oh, okay. No, I, I didn't hear you. Uh, so I was concerned about that. We've. I, I was going to ask you about how you define autocrat. Uh, I mean, calling for protesters to be constrained and dominated. You've written about that certainly in terms of uh, uh, autocracy, but also militarizing police and cracking down in times like these of turmoil with the utter. Dis what appears to be a disrespect for civil rights. These are, for you, the hallmarks of autocracy, I guess, aren't they? 
Uh, no, I wouldn't say those are the hallmarks of autocracy. They're typical of autocrats. Um, but no, the hallmarks of autocracy, uh, the hallmark of autocracy is wanting to govern or rather to rule without a system of checks and balances, without being constrained by the courts and without being checked by Congress. And Donald Trump has made it very clear that that's exactly how he wants to run government, whether it's by attacking the courts on Twitter and in real life, whether it's by uh, firing a serious inspector general, most recently, I believe yesterday, he, he fired an inspector general, um, which really does destroy the system of checks and balances, whether it's re- refusing to release his taxes and taking uh, and going to court uh, to, to, to try to validate his refusal to release his tax returns whether it's ignoring congressional subpoenas and ordering White House employees not to attend uh, hearings in Congress. Those are the hallmarks of an autocrat. But you also, forgive me, but you also mentioned in uh, your own writing, law and order and bigotry and segregating immigrants and scapegoating them and so forth. Uh, uh, So it's a big picture that we get here in a composite way of what autocracy is. Of course, but I'm telling you that that's not the definition of autocracy. That's my description of Donald Trump. Uh, A definition of autocracy is somebody who governs unilaterally without checks and balances. And that is what Donald Trump aspires to, I suppose, also to a great extent by it's very revelatory that he regards autocrats with such respect, particularly Vladimir Putin, whom you have written a great deal about. Actually, I wouldn't say particularly. Uh, I'd say he is an across-the-board admirer of tyrants, dictators, and autocrats. He, um, you know, whether he's talking about Kim Jong-un and talking about how they fell in love, whether he is praising Rodrigo Duterte's crackdown on, uh, or what he sees as the crackdown on, on the drug trade, or he talks about the beautiful way in which uh, Vladimir Putin controls the population. You know, all those expressions of admiration, they're actually pretty consistent across the board. And let me actually bring in Vladimir Putin, though, for a moment with you, if I may, because um, there is uh, there was a sense of at least uh, a movement toward democracy under Gorbachev or democratization with Glasnost and Perestroika and uh, certainly efforts toward democratization, but there weren't any long-standing, unless you include Alexander Kerensky, I guess, uh, very brief and ephemeral notions of democracy in Russia. We have had long institutionalizations of democratic institutions in this country, and I'm wondering if the consolidation of power and domination and autocracy by President Trump can be paralleled in any way to Putin, despite those historical differences, because Putin was able to move through oligarch consolidation and get the oligarchs behind him. Is Trump doing something similar in your judgment with corporate um, type oligarchs here? Well, actually, I wouldn't say that, that. That is not a description that I would use of how Putin consolidated power. Putin um, basically offered the oligarchs a um, a trade. He said, "You know, I'm going. To, you you can surrender your political power in exchange for personal and financial security." You don't see uh, an analogy there to agree. Trump at all? Uh, not really. But, I mean, you know, you raise an interesting question. How do we compare across cultures and across histories? And obviously, on the one hand, it's problematic because at any time we can say that's a different time or that's a different place. There's a different leg- legacy, and we must be aware of that. On the other hand, 
that's how we learn. We learn from history and we learn from what is going on in other places. And in the book, I actually use a, a vocabulary proposed by a Hungarian sociologist named Balint Marger, who has written, uh, I think, an absolutely brilliant thousand-page book on new autocracies, on how autocracies come into being in post-communist countries. And I'm very careful with the way I apply his language, because obviously post-communist countries are dealing with a different set of circumstances and different cultural and political legacy than the United States is. At the same time, you know, that's how we get knowledge, we sort of borrow from each other and we, we learn and we make adjustments as necessary to, for the model to be most useful. Masha Gessen is our guest. Uh, Masha Gessen is a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the new book, Surviving Autocracy. Something you, uh, I want to go back to uh, analogy to Putin for just a moment, cross-cultural though it may be, and uh, sometimes there are a lot of nuances that seem to be ignored with those kinds of cross-cultural analogies, I realize, but you've actually written uh, a good deal about uh, what we know about Chernobyl and what we didn't know about Chernobyl in 1986 in the response to it. And as there's been more information, uh, I think, as you pointed out, there's been more of a re revealing of the disregard for human life and of how there was this uh, monomaniacal focus on uh, actually pleasing the leader to make the leader seem unerring and all powerful. Again, the features of an uh, autocratic leader. So there is really a sensibility there that we can talk about and that we can parallel, isn't there? Yes, and that that is that has been one of the scariest parallels, because um, and I um, the very first time I read Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, which was when when I was a teenager, um, and I had just recently immigrated from the Soviet Union. I remember being absolutely struck by her insight that a totalitarian government. Uh, a totalitarian regime can be built only where it's possible to disregard a mass depopulation, where people are basically expendable. So a large enough country, but also a country that, um, whose, whose leadership is willing to just sacrifice human life in the name of terror, in the name of power, in the name of consolidation. And it always seemed um, at least, you know, uh, uh, some lives were always expendable in the United States, but the lives of white people, especially white men, were not expendable until Donald Trump came to power. And his reaction to the coronavirus was absolutely shocking to me because it showed a disregard for any kind of human life. Right? And because his, um, his willingness to suppress information and suppress a response in the name of uh, what he sees as his power, you know, his his approval ratings, uh, the economy which he sees as essential to maintaining his approval ratings, um, that uh, you know, he is willing to sacrifice all kinds of lives for that, and that is a new low for American politics. He was talking about Wall Street while people were dying and so forth. How much? Uh... Do you, in your analysis, hold him culpable for the numbers, the ex shocking and extraordinary numbers of deaths as a result of the pandemic? Um, well, I mean, that, that's, not, that's not my area of expertise. So I go by other people's uh, 
accounting. We have, at this point, clearly seen, and I think the new analysis today that came out is that about 60,000, uh, or actually, no, I'm, I'm wrong about that. No, I think it was, um, I think the latest we heard was about 36,000 lives were lost because of the delayed reaction. Right? Uh, it is conceivable that this country could have avoided a pandemic altogether, you know, an actual pandemic in the United States if the reaction to news from China in early January had been timely and serious enough. So I think at this point we can't put a number on it. But even, you know, what, what, are we going to handle over tens of thousands of lives? Lives were lost because of this government's disregard for human life and, and, and its, lie, its disdain for expertise and Trump's monomaniacal focus on power. What's even worse is that more lives will be lost. I mean, we are headed into a an ill-advised, uh, catastrophic reopening that we have already seen across some of the country, and the rest of the country is now is now joining. And you know, even in New York, where I live, where I think the leadership has been more prudent, I think the sort of Trumpian inertia or uh, Trumpian momentum for opening is playing a role, and I think it's opening too fast. Well, you've written, I believe, that pa the pandemic allows him to govern as he likes uh, with a kind of arrogant ignorance uh, that's lethal. And you also say when people try to write him off as being incompetent, uh, that incompetence uh, is, is militant. It's uh, the threat itself. Absolutely. I think that, uh, especially early on in the Trumpian presidency, uh, Trump's presidency, people sort of looked at him and thought, oh, well, he's a buffoon. How much damage is he really going to do? And I think that shows a basic misunderstanding of history and, and context. You know, we like to imagine that uh, the monsters of history were these evil masterminds who had a grand design and then fooled everybody um, by putting it into, in, 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 into, into effect. In fact, I think things are much more scary. Uh, humanity has stumbled in the darkest moments. A lot of leaders, you know, the, the scariest leaders in history were not very smart, very educated people, but they wielded a militant ignorance. Right. It's Trump's attack on expertise. It's his attack on government. It's his attack on politics. And most of all, I would say his, his attack on complexity. He wants everything to be dumbed down and simple. And, you know, when we respond to contemporary threats, whether they're uh, economic, cultural or scientific, you know, whether it's whether it's health or public health or climate change, when we respond to them in these ways, it is lethal. It's an attack on science, really, as well, as long as we're cataloging. Uh, I'm also struck by, though, something that you wrote about the intentionality of this. I mean, he may not be an evil mastermind or he may not be a, uh, someone of great cerebral uh, powers or anything along those lines as an autocrat. But there is, um, you mentioned, for example, agencies that were almost set up with cabinet leadership that was totally antithetical to the kind of expertise you would expect. And uh, I'm thinking not only of people like Betsy DeVos in education or Rick Perry in energy, I'm thinking about Scott Pruitt with the EPA or for that matter, Ben Carson in housing of someone 
some wag once said uh, Ben Carson had a lot of experience. He lived in a house at one point. It's almost, from your perspective, an intentionality to be completely undoing of those institutions that are identified with the cabinet? Absolutely. I mean, I think that Trump's appointments from, from the very start have uh, his, his his criteria for choosing people were very clear. He wanted people who were not only unqualified to lead those agencies, but who had hatred for those agencies, who were intent on destroying those agencies. I mean, Rick Perry had no idea what energy was, but he wanted to abolish it anyway. Ben Carson, you know, what's interesting about him is that not only was he clearly unqualified when he was appointed, uh, he was a neurosurgeon, perhaps a good one, I have no idea, but he had absolutely no government, management, or policy experience. Same could be said about President Trump, of course. (laughs) Well, at least he had ostensibly management experience. Um, but, um, But Carson, you know, look at him two years into his tenure, and he still knows – he still – at this point, he was testifying in Congress, and it turned out that he was unfamiliar with the basic terminology of his agency. So don't, not only are these people unqualified, but they have no intention, and they, at this point, they have no track record of making themselves equal to the task. Because what they're tasked with by their, uh, by, by their boss right, um, is destroying agencies is maintaining this level of contempt for government and dismantling it. Um, I was going to say little by little, but it's actually not little by little. It's actually quite rapidly. And, you know, we um, have not yet taken in the full extent of the damage. We see bits of it at various times. I have followed very cl- uh, fairly closely the decimation of the State Department. But, you know, in three and a half years, This country has essentially destroyed its foreign policy establishment, has retreated from the world scene, and so militantly, but also passively, passively by just not participating, militantly by doing things like pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, pulling out of WHO, um, defunding programs. Um, But, you know, so I know, I have seen how the State Department turned into a vast desert but other people were looking at other things, and we saw, for example, what kind of damage has been done to the CDC. The pandemic brought it to the forefront. There are a lot of things that are not currently in focus that have also been destroyed and where the damage will be long-term and, and repairs will need to be radical. The destruction of the State Department has uh, been something that's come up repeatedly on this program. Uh, Richard Haas, recently head of the Council of Foreign Relations, and I were talking about it just last week. Uh, but I'm just wondering to what extent uh, you, uh, well, lodge a protest or uh, say to the kind of argument that we hear that uh, Trump uh, is really going against globalism, that this is not a bad thing, this is putting America first, and this is what many people feel is the best thing about President Trump. Well, I guess many people do feel that. Uh, I, I don't know where to begin, because uh, what does going against globalism mean? Um, we live in an interconnected world. And uh, there are certainly a lot of problems with the way that international trade and the movement of capital and the dominance of capital worldwide, uh, there are a lot of ways in which those things have, have impacted people's lives in a really horrible way. That is true. But you don't address it 
by, by throwing a tantrum and saying, I refuse to live in an interconnected world because we still live in an interconnected world. And so the question is, how do we live in this world better? How do we make this entire world, this interconnected world, more humane, more equal? What Trump is doing is making it less humane, less equal, pulling out of international agencies, pulling out of international treaties, uh, is basically a refusal to cooperate. Um, and that is anti-political. It is not good for anybody, except for maybe Donald Trump. Talking with Masha Gessen, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the new book, Surviving Autocracy. And what questions do you have for Masha Gessen? You can give us a call, and I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That number again, 866 866- 733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And Masha Gessen, you also write about uh, Trump as an autocrat, but also as a performer and uh, playing a kind of dominant role that he has been scripted in his head from TV and film. Uh, and you say he's a talented performer. You know, he was playing, uh, he's playing what he thinks a president should look like, like he was playing... Uh, on The Apprentice, what he thought a real estate tycoon should look like. Right. And as a performer, I think Trump always gives us a kind of exaggerated version of whatever he thinks a thing a thing is, right? Um, what he thought a real estate tycoon was, uh, was somebody who was unpredictable, um, incredibly sort of domineering, incredibly temperamental. Um, and, you know, he performed well, then he performed power. He did it very well. By the time when um, The Apprentice started, he was a washed-up um, New York wheeler dealer. And by the time it was over, his presidential candidacy was plausible. Um, I think he's done the same with the presidency. He has certainly um, he has performed what he thinks power looks like. And we saw the, the apogee of that this past week. When he shows that he thinks that power looks like domination, a word that he's been using a lot, that power looks like uh, armed soldiers um, uh, chasing peaceful protesters away with tear gas and rubber bullets. Uh, he thinks it looks like soldiers in full combat or right in full combat gear standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, it's a very it's a very powerful image, right? The columns uh, of, the, of the Lincoln Memorial, those men in in several rows in front of the of the of the memorial. I mean, that is an image of power that I think we viscerally recognize, right? But what kind of power is that? What is he performing? He's performing fascism. He's performing total political domination, the supremacy of one race over others, and and military control. And that's the heart of the book. Uh, And the book, again, uh, is Surviving Autocracy. The author is Masha Gessen, who is with us for the hour, and you can be with us as well. We invite your participation. We're talking about the Trump presidency and how President Trump has been responding both to the pandemic and nationwide protests and uh, the whole notion of autocracy. So feel free to join the program at 866-733-6786, or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking this hour about the Trump presidency and how President Trump has been responding to the pandemic and to nationwide protests. 
with Masha Gessen, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the new book, Surviving Autocracy. And I'm going to go to your calls here forthwith. I just have to ask you, though, out of my own curiosity, Masha Gessen, how you speak English so flawlessly. You grew up in Russia. I was 14 when I immigrated here. You know, there are a lot of people who emigrated here at younger ages who don't speak as flawlessly as you do, and uh, uh, I was just marveling at it. Um, Thank you. And, uh, and I also write in English. <laughs> yes, I know, and you write, and you write really also flawless prose, if I may say so. Uh, uh, Thank my, you very much. I wish my Russian were as good as your English. Um, let me bring a caller aboard here. Stu is our first caller. Stu, you're on. Morning. Yeah. Hello. Hi, Stu. Go Can ahead. You hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I come from a similar background to your guest, and uh, I was wondering what she thought about how Americans naivete uh, about uh, the impossibility of an autocracy being possible in the United States, about how we have such a well-built democracy uh, and our people are uh, not prone to strong men as leaders. How that naivete, uh, which makes my eyes roll, uh, allows Trump to do what he does. Marsha Kessin. Uh, I think that's a really insightful question, Stu. And uh, I mean, it was more of a comment, and I can agree with it. Americans have what I think of as an almost religious faith in the Constitution and sort of the design of this country, as though it were self-repairing, as though it were a perfect system. And it's not. You know, I think the founding fathers actually realized that it was a hugely flawed system. And and I think that they debated how to protect the system a lot. But they, their debate was imbued with this understanding that what they were trying to create was quite fragile and would require a lot of maintenance. And I think that Americans have fallen, and I'm an American citizen. I was just positioned as a, as, as a Russian citizen, but um, even though I was, I was born in Russia, I immigrated to this country when I was 15. I went back to Russia as a correspondent 10 years later, um, but I have been an American t- citizen since I was a teenager. And I think we have fallen down on the job of looking after our institutions, um, not just to maintain them, but to question how well they serve the purported purpose of creating a government of the people for the people and by the people. Isn't one of the major problems, uh, though, the fact that uh, this president has named the press as the enemy of the people? And also, um, you've written about the impossibility of the press even following Trump because of the flood of chaos and what you call the the word piles uh, that fill the public space with uh, static like pollutants. Uh, I think this is right on to something that we um, have to reckon with. How inured have we become? How anesthetized have we become? We have certainly become very used to him. I mean, I think this is a human quality. Humans are adaptable. Uh, Humans will get used to almost anything. And that is what allows us to survive. But it also what allows us to normalize practically in real time. You know, when I look back to things that I was writing when he was first elected and sort of saying, believe him, you know, he's uh, he's actually going to try to build a wall. Uh, listen to him. He is, um, there are no guarantees that we can depend on the things that we take for granted, such as, for example, daily televised White House briefings. Remember those? At the time that I wrote that about three and a half years ago, it seemed a fairly exotic idea that those could go anywhere, but they were so easy to get rid of. 
And that's a very um, clear example of the way in which this administration doesn't even try to perform accountability, right? It's not only not accountable and refuses to be held accountable. It refuses to pretend that it will be held accountable. And um, that makes the media's job much, much more difficult. But what also makes our job extremely difficult is that Trump makes a lot of uh, lies a lot and makes a lot of pronouncements that on the face of it are absurd. But they have consequences. They're not meaningless. They have consequences because he's the president. And that's a real dilemma, right? How do we deal with those? We can't not report on them, but reporting on them places them in a kind of sphere of legitimacy where they don't belong. So, and that's it's a kind of a lose-lose proposition, and we have to figure out creative ways of, of dealing with it. But there's no obvious right solution. And finally, I want to I want to talk about the enemy of the of the people trope, right? Uh, uh, Trump's very Stalinist uh, expression that he has reserved for the media, which is the enemy of the people. And we have seen how he forms that, especially in the last few months, when he has repeatedly singled out women of color and, in particular, African American women journalists as his enemies of his particular people. And we have also seen it during the protest. As we have seen police attack journalists uh, at protests all over the country, right? this is something that we tend to see elsewhere. We see it in countries where there isn't rule of law. We see it in countries where the media are marginalized and as the opposition. And we have seen it all over this country, and this is the success of Donald Trump's campaign against the media. He has really succeeded in positioning the media as other, as the enemy, and of course helps that a lot of the journalists who have been attacked are also people of color, whom Donald Trump has also repeatedly positioned as other. You think, for example, when you abandon civility, which he does uh, sporadically, and say that a reporter is unfit to be a journalist and is incompetent and stupid and so forth, uh, as you say, often women of color, that he's also playing to his base. He's also getting the kind of support that he feels he needs. Of course. I mean, when he is backing the media and when he is uh, being a racist very explicitly, he is playing to his base. And we'll get another caller aboard. Uh, that's Michelle. Michelle, join us. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. My question is about what you're talking about um, already. I think that I'm finding that when I listen to the news or to journalists in press briefings, that I want there to be this kind of unified front of journalists because it seems like it keeps defaulting back to the civility on the part of journalists. And I feel like there's a consensus among journalists that he lies constantly. He's a pathological liar, that he's a dictator, that he's racist, that he's sexist, that he's all these things. And yet, and that he, you know, he makes this claim about fake news, which is yet another racist trope that goes back in history, hundreds of years, probably, um, as far as fake media. And yet people don't really corner him in these in these questionings. Um, he said that coronavirus was fake news. I mean, it's the most blatant example where he was just, <laughs> everyone knows he's totally off his rocker. And it just drops. 
it doesn't, there's no follow-up when he says fake news the next time. There's this kind of just inconsistency with journalists that just pushing in a unified way. Michelle, let me get a response from Marsha Gesson. Thank you for the call. Okay, I was, uh, I, I couldn't hear all of it, unfortunately, um, but I'm, I think... Why not have a unified front where journalists is really, I think, the heart of what she's asking. Right. Why not? Uh, okay. So that's that's a great question. Um, why don't why not have a unified front? And what would that look like? Right. Um, would it look like journalists standing up for one another when, for example, they're kicked out of the White House press room, or when your hard pass to the White House is taken away, or when Donald Trump won't let somebody ask a question, or when Donald Trump used toward uh, journalists, especially women of color journalists? <clears throat> that um, problems with that. I mean, I think that solidarity is an absolute I mean, wish. Can can Fox that, News be solidarity with MSNBC? I mean, we've got uh, quite divided journalistic community here. Um, well, <laughs> I don't know. You know, that that's part of the problem is that I don't know that we are even in the same profession. I don't know that I'm in the same profession as Fox News, although Fox News has some great news reporters. Um, and on the whole, right, if you take if you take sort of Fox News uh, as, a, as a, in its totality as a total 24-hour flow, you will see a lot of accurate stories. The problem is that uh, Fox News places in the sphere of legitimacy uh, people like Sean Hannity or you know uh, things that just shouldn't. Have no place in the public forum, but but let me get back to the to the issue of of, of solidarity. Um, I think that for journalists, this is a real dilemma. If you uh, act in solidarity with your colleagues and, for example, walk out of the White House, you are giving this president exactly what he wants, which is a lack of uh, a scrutiny. This White House is really really bad as a source of information about itself. It's still the best available source, and so so it's 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 it's, it's a real problem. The other problem we have is structural in our media. Right? The media are profit-driven. They're corporations. They talk of themselves as the public sphere, but they don't conceive of themselves as a public sphere. They conceive of themselves as private, profit-oriented companies. And that makes it much less likely that they will perform their jobs without sort of contamination, without adverse incentives. The profit incentive is to get the story when your colleague can't get the story. And it's very hard to get past that. We'll bring another caller on for Masha Gessen, and that's Sam. Sam, you're on the air. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Simple, short question. Based upon your extensive research, Marsha, what are the primary differences between a typical dictator and a typical autocrat? Thank you. What is the primary difference between a dictator and an autocrat? That was the question. Correct. Uh, they're synonyms. A dictator and an autocrat are synonymous. Uh, thanks, Sam, for the call. Uh, here's another question from a listener named Ivantia who wants to know what you think the likelihood is that President Trump will claim the election results are fraudulent and refuse to leave office. Um, I think that's a real danger. I think that, uh, that you know, we don't we don't have a recipe for something that we haven't faced a crisis like this before. I think it is it is incumbent upon us to recognize that that's a real danger. Now, if we were talking about a country where uh, where, where where this was 
a real possibility, we would say, well, who is the military with? And I think the the answer to that question, again, in any country, is it depends on who is perceived as actually legitimate. And that means we really have to focus on the campaign and on getting as many people out to the polls to vote Donald Trump out of office. Every vote is going to, to count, including in a scenario in which he refuses to leave office. Well, there will be probably... Excuse me, I was just going to say there will be charges like uh, we talked to George Will in the last hour in New Hampshire. There were all this charge of fraudulent voting, uh, even when he won and became elected president of the United States. Uh, there have been hints of that, you know, in, in elections right up to the present. Absolutely. He has laid the groundwork for refusing to recognize the results of the election. He has, uh, he has talked incessantly about what he imagines as voter fraud. Uh, and this, if you recall, is what caused Twitter to finally fact-check Donald Trump because his claims about voter fraud are so egregious. He, even uh, in the aftermath of the 2016 election, he kept talking about millions of, of immigrants voting illegally, a completely you know, fanciful fascist claim that has nothing to do with reality. But he has laid the ground for not recognizing the results of the election. Um, our response to that has to be to vote him out of, of office by the biggest margin imaginable. And here is Sean. Sean, I think, is on point. Sean, go ahead. Hi, how are you doing? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. My thoughts are, speaking with young people, especially during this protest, their thoughts are because Sanders got slighted by the Democratic Party and now Biden is the presumed front runner that they're either going to vote for Trump or they're not going to vote for all, for anyone. So how do we convince them that? Yeah, Sean, excuse me, you're coming across kind of muffled. It's not a a great connection, but I think to the heart of his question, how to get young people out to vote, how to motivate them and give them an incentive uh, to vote when so many sit it out? Uh, Well, that's that's the $64,000 question. Um, how do we get people who are in the streets now, who have every reason to um, to feel that the system uh, needs to be you know, t- uh, challenged fundamentally and not just corrected through the vote? How do we get people out to the polls? That's the question for Joe Biden. You know, is he going to be able to propose enough of a vision? I and mean, I'm talking about Joe Biden as the presumptive nominee, right? Um, uh, or whoever the, the Democratic nominee is, is this not a person going to be able to propose as revolutionary a vision, as future-oriented, as truly responsive to uh, the, the material and emotional needs of the people of this country? Well, Joe Biden has talked about the loss of the American soul. I mean, is that uh, pretty much a good point for him to continue to come back to, that we need to restore the American soul? I think that Joe Biden has taken steps toward a more radical vision in recent days. I think he has a long way to go. I think what we're waiting for from the, from the Democratic nominee is is a vision that is full of moral aspiration and 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 Vision, right? Uh, the Democratic Party has been wedded at a view of policy for decades. Uh, you have somebody like Donald Trump on one hand, emotionally promising to take people back to an imaginary past, 
And then you have Democratic politicians, on the other hand, saying, I have a really good resume. I know how to manage this country. That is not going to work. The anxieties that Donald Trump was addressing in his 2016 campaign were real. Right? And um, and I think that there ha- there's, there has to be an entirely different answer. Instead of the imaginary past, there has to be a glorious future. We really have to imagine how this country we could wake up 5, 10, 15 years from now and feel safe, feel secure in, in, in our health, in our economic well-being, uh, among our fellow uh, countrymen, uh, how every one of us could feel safe despite police in the streets or because the police are no longer in the streets. You know, that is the kind of vision that we need from the Democratic nominee. What would you say to the argument that one hears that if Biden moves too much to the left, he's going to lose a great deal of uh, possible votes of those who are afraid of the left? I think we have seen no actual evidence of that. I think this is an idea, right? It's, it, but it's kind of an idea in a vacuum. Uh, there is no evidence that uh, that moving uh, to the left, and I don't, you know, I don't even think that left-right is a useful uh, division right now for the Democratic Party. I think what we really need to be talking about is future and past and present. Right? Is the Democratic nominee really going to be able to talk about the future? If he's going to talk about returning us to an imaginary pre-Trumpian past when everything was normal, that's not going to work. If he's only going to be talking about fixing things that Trump has destroyed, that's not going to work. Right? We need a really visionary nominee, and I think that any fears that are connected with that vision being too radical, you know, the, the, the people voicing those fears are clearly blind to what's going on in the streets. Jay in Pleasanton is our next caller. Jay, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, in our system, we have a 10-week period between the election and the inauguration of a new president, the purpose of which is to allow a cooperative, orderly transition of power. I think there's zero chance that this president would do anything to help the incoming president and might even try to hobble him. My question is, how ugly could that 10 weeks be, or am I overly worried about it? Thanks. Thank you. Masha Gessen. I think you're right to be worried about it. Uh, You know, as a journalist, uh, I am not in the business of making predictions. So, again, I would say that we know that this president is going has laid the groundwork for refusing to recognize the results of the election. Right. So, uh, yeah, there's every reason to fear ugliness. But other than that, you know, I can't I can't make predictions. Some questions about uh, the relationship between Trump and Putin from listeners I'd like to go to next. Merrily writes, why isn't anyone talking about Trump talking with Putin the morning before the Lafayette Square debacle and all the other private conversations he has had with Putin? I can't keep from wondering what dirt Putin has on him. And Kim says, what is Masha's take on the personal relationship between Trump and Putin? I am so uninterested in the personal relationship between Trump and Putin. I, uh, you know, I think that this has been a um, a sort of crutch for the American imagination to think that somehow Trump is Putin's puppet, uh, or somehow, you know, uh, Putin tells Trump what to do. Putin doesn't have to tell Trump what to do. Trump has wanted to do this from the very beginning. We have known everything about Trump because he told us. 
He told us that he sees political power as raw domination. He told us that he's in love with the military, that he's obsessed with tanks and parades and guns, and the only people that he has any respect for are generals. He told us that he has absolutely no respect for the democratic process as it exists in the United States. He told us that he has no use and, in fact, only, only disdain for the system of checks and balances. He doesn't need Putin for that. Well, Robert Mueller has made it uh, evident, made it evident uh, in wrapping up essentially the investigations uh, under his leadership that perhaps we have most to fear interference again in this upcoming election. And the interference uh, seems to be incontrovertible where Russia is concerned. They want Trump to remain president. So what can be done in your judgment? What ought to be done to head that off? I convinced that Russia wants Trump to remain president, first of all. Uh, second of all, yes, of course, uh, Russian interference is something that um, that existed in 2016 and will exist again. But it's it's a mistake to think that Russians elected Trump. Americans elected Trump. We will never know, we will never be able to calculate how much Russian bots contributed to the state of division, polarization, and disarray that existed in the United States at the time that Trump was elected. But we do know, however, that Russians were using the same tactics they have always used. And uh, and this year, or in 2016, those tactics tapped into something that was happening in the United States and became truly resonant. But the problem still lies with us. The problem lies in this country with our politics and with our broken system. Todd writes, at what point will the Senate realize they are expendable in an autocracy? Well, uh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that they're exactly expendable in an autocracy. If you look at um, currently existing autocracies, they maintain certain um, accessories of democratic uh, power, right? They still have and, and, and uh, or parliaments. They still have things that they call elections. They have, in many cases, rigged their constitutions in a way that make uh, that makes the elections meaningless, or else they have rigged the electoral process in a way that makes the, elect- the elections m- meaningless, or they have uh, and or they have come to dominate the media in such a way that it makes the election me- the elections meaningless. But they still go through the motions. And what worries me about the Republican Party in particular is that I think a lot of Republican politicians really have demonstrated that they don't care whether they're actually elected. They just care if they get to keep their jobs. And so gradually or not so gradually over the course of just two and a half years, they have turned away from their voters as their primary audience and turned toward Donald Trump as their primary audience. Because they know that their ability to keep their jobs depends on Donald Trump. What Donald Trump tells uh, people in countries, in, in, in states where he has a very strong electoral base, is what happens to Republican nominees or Republican candidates. And so they play to him, not to their voters. Our guest is Masha Gessen. Masha Gessen is the author of Surviving Autocracy and is a staff writer for The New Yorker. And uh, a couple more questions from listeners by email. Laura says, what needs to be done to strengthen our Constitution to prevent this again? You know, 
our faith in the Constitution is is a little bit misplaced. A lot of uh, countries where that are by no stretch of the imagination democratic are have really great constitutions but they have bad faith actors and they have uh and they find violating the constitution or just using it to mean nothing very very easy <clears throat> i'm not saying <clears throat> that the constitution doesn't matter obviously it matters a great deal but we're not going to be able to fix this by making changes to the constitution we have to fix this by creating politics, by creating consensus, by creating a sense that we all live in a country that we all care about, uh, by creating a sense that we are only as well, as happy, as healthy as our poorest and sickest members. And that's a whole new ethos for this country. It's, it, and you can't exactly write it into the Constitution. Can you give us a sense, perhaps, of what you envision, though, about I mean, you talked about moral aspiration and you've talked about reinventing <clears throat> our institutions, reinventing politics, reinventing democracy. What do you foresee? What would you like to foresee? Um, well, you know, I've been thinking, for example, at what, uh, about what we've talked about um, during the pandemic. Early on, people were talking about, oh, we're going to be able to reinvent everything. And it's actually, how do we reinvent things? Um, are we going to reinvent education now that we've had a taste of online education and now that um, colleges and universities are in great financial crises? Are we going to reinvent them to make them less accessible uh, and also cheaper to run? Or are we going to reinvent them to create actual equality and access to education? In other words, free college. Um, are we going to finally have universal health care? Right? Not like uh, a half-attempted universal health care that has now been undermined by this administration over the course of three and a half years. Are we going to have increased inequality, or are we going to finally find a way to value people for their humanity and not for the, what they produce? We're very, very far from doing that. Are we going to address climate change in a, in a really uh, fundamental, radical way. And that means addressing the capitalist foundations of our society. What we have seen in the last, again, three months, and this has been an, an incredible, I think, revelation for a lot of people, who, are, who certainly people like me, who are not you know, professional uh, climate uh, watchers or journalists or scientists, is that even with the lack of air travel or the, the enormous drop in, the, in air travel, the enormous drop in commuting by automobile, the enormous drop in industrial production, there's been very, very little drop in emissions. And, and so we have to talk about not tiny measures that, uh, or certainly not individual action, uh, not you know, recycling and, um, and consuming less, but an actual revolutionary change in the way we live on this planet. And for that, we all have to be talking to one another. So it's a different okay. politics. We're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure to have you. I thank you for being with us. Spasibo, dosvidanya. And uh, you remain, in my mind, one of our leading and most challenging intellectual thinkers. Good to have you aboard. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's Marsha Gessen. The book is Surviving Autocracy. She's staff writer for The New Yorker. I'm Michael Krasny.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.